here comes the uh, big risk of the evening. Well, the second big risk. The first big risk is I'm actually going to try to do this from my iPad mini. You know, <laughs> um, I've only ever used paper, and I've tried to, to get away from the paper. And so some friend of mine who's, in the, who's here tonight said, oh, you should try doing you know, your, your talks from the – so we're going to see. If it, if it messes up, I'll give you his name, and you can, you can take it up with him later. Anyway, here, here it is. Here is the, here's the moment you've all been waiting for. The alpha, the, the famous, the famous alpha shark joke. And I'm going to try to do this with, without a net. In other words, I'm not going to read it to you. I'm going to try to do it from memory. And so just uh, channel. Come on, let's help Gary get through this joke. Here we go. All right, there was, this rec, uh, there was this wealthy Texas billionaire, wealthy Texas billionaire, and he had three daughters, uh, two of whom were already married. And his third daughter, she just never seemed to meet the right guy. And, and he was worried as he was aging that maybe he might not see this daughter get married. And so he decided to take matters into his own hands. You know how parents will do sometimes. They'll conspire to, to make something happen in their child's life. So he decided he was going to set up a contest and um, offer three prizes. The third prize would be his daughter's hand in marriage, which would get the winner all of his fortune. Now, this particular rancher had the largest collection of longhorn steers in the world. It was, it was worth several million dollars. He also had the most land west of the Mississippi, which was worth several billion dollars. And so his plan was that he was going to offer the winner, you know, option one, option two, and then option three would be, and my daughter's hand in marriage, and then a third of everything I own would be yours. And so he just knew this was going to work. So anyway, he invited all the wealthiest bachelors from all over the world to come to his ranch in Texas. And they all flew in, and they, you can imagine, they all had tuxedos on, fine-looking men from all, all walks of life. And he got them in his Jeep, and he drove them to the top of a hill, and he showed them his, his collection of longhorn steers and told them how valuable they were. And then he put him back in the Jeep, and he drove him to the other side of his ranch and showed him the expansive acreage that he owned. And then finally he brought him back to his swimming pool in his backyard. And he had all the men lined up there. And he said, okay, guys, I brought you here for a reason. Um, the person that can swim the fastest from one end of the pool to the other will be the winner and will have the chance at one of the three prizes I told you, either the collection of steers, the acreage, or my daughter's hand in marriage. And about that time over his shoulder, he hears, splash! And everybody turns around, and there's one guy already in the pool. What he failed to mention to them at this point was he had put a great white shark in the water. And the great white shark was going to chase whoever swam. So this guy hit the water and looked up and noticed this large dorsal fin coming for him. So as you can imagine, he swam like crazy, and people were starting to get worried. And he swam, and the shark got closer, and he swam, and the shark got closer. And just about the time it looked like the great white shark was going to have him, he threw himself out on the other end of the pool, and everybody couldn't believe it. Oh, my gosh, he survived, you know, and the owner ran up to him out of breath, and he said, young man, he said, young man, that was amazing. I've never seen anything like it. Never seen anything like it. Um, you've won. What can I give you? Would you like the collection of steers? And he said, no, sir, as he was toweling himself off. He said, well, then would you, would you like all of my land? And the young man got the towel off his head, and he said, no, sir. And so the guy knew he had him. He knew he was going to choose his daughter. He said, so then I guess you'd like my daughter's hand in marriage. And the young man said, no, sir. And the, the millionaire was miffed. He said, well, then what? What would you like? He said, well, sir, I'd really like the name of the guy that pushed me in. <laughs> Aha, thank you for the obligatory giggle. That was good. I know it took a long time getting there, but the reason I like to tell that joke at the first night of Alpha is because I would speculate that well over half of the people who've signed up to come tonight feel like that guy in the pool. You've been pushed in. You didn't really want to come. This was something your wife suggested you needed to do, or this was something uh, that your parents suggested that you needed to do, or somebody that you know has been harassing you for a long time to come. 
So you're here, you're like, okay, I'll do it. Maybe it won't be as bad, or maybe I can come once and slip out and nobody will notice. But I do believe that lots of people who come to Alpha uh, come under austere circumstances, and they're not necessarily here because they want to be. And if you're here, if it's one of you, then I applaud you, and I want to encourage you to hang in there. Um, there is life after the pool. You'll get out, and everybody will be fine. But um, it, it, I, I imagine there are some people who feel like that. So in your course guide, the first three talks that I'm going to cover tonight are, is there a purpose to life? Who was Jesus, and why did he die? Who was Jesus, and why did he die? So people search for meaning in life all kinds of ways. I think you would agree with me about that. People pursue all types of things to look for meaning in their life. They look at religion or poetry or music. Some people find meaning in their life from their career or where they work, their family. Lots of people get consumed with family or politics. Some people turn to drugs and alcohol for meaning in life. And some people turn to other people. Maybe it's making friends. I mean, Facebook, the phenomenon of the social networking. Lots of people are getting caught up trying to find the meaning of life through all of this social networking. But in my experience, that usually leaves people empty. There was a millionaire, I think it was Rockefeller, who was asked um, when he turned 40 what he wished someone would have told him when he was 16. And what he said was, I wish somebody would have told me that when I turned 40 and got to the top of the ladder, there was nothing up there. There was nothing up there. And so what he was referring to was he had poured all of his time and all of his energy into the pursuit of wealth and into the pursuit of amassing power, and um, it hadn't amounted to anything substantial. He still had an empty feeling in his life. Well, Christianity has a response to that. The, the Christian faith has a response. But before we get to that response, I want to talk about Christianity for a second, and I want to talk about the three objections to people who find Christianity unsavory, if you will. The three things most often people say about Christianity is that it's boring, it's untrue, or it's irrelevant. It's boring, it's untrue, and it's irrelevant. And I don't believe those are new claims. I think Jesus heard essentially the same response from the people he met. Well, in the Alpha Course, uh, we look at what Jesus said and did, and we're going to do that in just a couple minutes, and we compare what Jesus said and did to what the world offers as an explanation or explanations for the meaning of life. Because Jesus made three important claims, interesting, important claims, that, that counter the claims of boring, untrue, or irrelevant. You see, Jesus said in John chapter 14, uh, verse 6, and we'll turn there in a bit, that um, he was the way. He was the way. In other words, to understand purpose or meaning in our life, Jesus said, you have to follow me. You have to, have to go my way. Um, Jesus said he was the truth. Um, he said that this truth was something that was found not in our heads, not something that we learned in books, but it was found in a relationship. This truth about life was found in a relationship. And finally, Jesus said, I am the life, which may have been the most provocative thing he said of all. I am the life. And that's the real cornerstone of what Jesus' message was. It was a loving relationship he was talking about to God and the expressed love to others. And most of us, I'll say, I know I did for quite a while in my life, I lived outside of that relationship. I'm separated by sin and living in darkness, as the Bible says. So with these claims that Jesus made, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Let's look at um, who this man Jesus was, and that's actually the first talk. It's, who was Jesus? So, do we even know, this is one of the most common objections I've heard in my life, you know, did Jesus really exist? I mean, was he a real person, or was this just somebody that people made up so they could form this religion? Well, actually, there's plenty of evidence that Jesus existed. Um, outside of the Christian faith, there are two Roman historians 
that have written about Jesus in books, Tacitus and Suetonius, and then a Jewish historian, which is kind of interesting. Josephus is probably the person who's written the most about Jesus outside of the New Testament. And I want to say something about the New Testament for a second. The, the New Testament offers four versions of Jesus' life. And I know for people who are skeptical, they think, well, those are all just four made-up stories. But it's interesting that a lot of the information in each of those stories seems to come together at certain points. And so this information that was collected very shortly after Jesus' death is corroborated in four different ways. So Jesus clearly lived. He clearly was a man, and he clearly existed. Um, another objection you hear, um, how do we know that what was written down, how do we know that whatever they wrote down in those books called the Bible hasn't been altered over the years or wasn't uh, misquoted because it was written so late in the game? Well, this is where I want you to turn to page 12 and 13 in your guide. Turn to page 12 and 13. And what you'll see in your guide is a chart. And it's one of the ways that uh, historians verify accuracy in documents that are written. And it's done so by looking at how long between the event and the documentation, what was the span of time between the event and documentation. So, for instance, um, make sure I'm on the right page. They give you several, several books that were written in the upper right-hand corner of page 13. And they talk about the date that the book was written. So for the first one, Herodotus, the book was written sometime between 488 and 428 B.C. Remember, we're going the other way when we're, excuse me, when we're B.C. The earliest copy they can find of that one book was about 900 A.D. So that's a span of about 1,300 years. Do you see that? From the time it was actually written till the time a copy was made, there's been a gap of about 1,300 years, and there are only eight copies in existence of that particular book. I'm not going to go through each one, but I want to get down and, of course, make my point about Christianity. If you look at the last line, the New Testament, and I want to focus on the four books, the four Gospels, if you will, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written somewhere between 40 and a little bit beyond 100 A.D. Um, the earliest copy that they have of those books was written around 130. And then manuscripts they started to discover as early as 350. So what you see in the fourth column there is that the time lapse between the original document and the next copies that started to come out was at a minimum 30 years and at a maximum 310 years. And then here's the stunner. There are 5,000 copies in Greek, 10,000 copies in Latin, and 9,300 others. Now that's not the copies that we've passed out tonight. These are just reprints. Those are actual copies that were made by hand in, in most cases and copied from an original document. So the, the New Testament is well documented in terms of its historical accuracy. I just I want to point that out. That's one of the biggest challenges I hear. So, who was Jesus? Was he fully human? That's another thing that people ask. You know, was he fully human or was he some kind of superhuman? Well, the, the New Testament is clear that Jesus was fully human because it talks about the things that he did. It talks about him being hungry and tired. Those are, those are human body functions. It talked about his human emotions. Jesus was sad. He expressed joy and he expressed love. Um, and it talked about human experiences. The Bible talks about Jesus suffering. It talks about Jesus being tempted. And it talks about Jesus' obedience. So with those things in mind, what did Jesus say about himself? We've looked at was he really a person? Did, are these copies, is there a chance they could have been redacted or changed a great deal? Um, what, what, was he really human? So let's look at what he said as recorded in the Bible. What did Jesus actually say? Well, this is the interesting thing, and I've, I've made the point earlier. Look in your Bibles now 
um, on page 803. Go to page 803. I just want you to read what I quoted a minute ago. Because these are the bold claims that he made, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. On page 803, you'll see chapter 14. And we want to go to chapter 14, verse 6, which is about, let's see, two-thirds of the way on that first column on page 803. And it says there, um, 14.6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Huge, bold claim. Um, Jesus goes on to say in other parts that he's the bread of life, that he has the power to forgive sins, and he actually says that he's the Son of God. Uh, bold, bold statements when, when looked at, especially during his time in the Jewish community. So with those statements in mind, turn to page 16 in your Red Course Guide, please. Because this really was a quote that I hadn't heard until I, I took Alpha. And um, I was doubting and wondering and thinking, okay. And this quote really, uh, I mean, it kind of put me in a spot. So I'll read it. Uh, this is C.S. Lewis, uh, 20th century theologian, bright guy from... Uh, Great Britain uh, had a famous movie out a while back, Chronicles of Narnia. You may have seen it. Anyway, C.S. Lewis says, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be insane or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice, he writes. Either Jesus was and is the Son of God or else he was insane or evil. But, C.S. Lewis goes on, let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. We are faced then with a frightening alternative. Either Jesus was and is exactly what he said, or else he was insane or something worse. To C.S. Lewis, it seemed clear that he could neither have been insane or evil, and thus he concludes, and I love this, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Was and is God. So lastly, um, what proof or evidence is there to support what Jesus says? Well, a lot of what Jesus says is quotations from the Old Testament. The Bible is divided into two parts, the New Testament and the Old Testament. And Jesus talks a lot about the Old Testament. And if you refer to the Old Testament, he talks about himself being the fulfillment of the Old Testament. There's also a great deal of prophecy. There were people besides Jesus who were speaking about who he was, and he fulfilled a lot of their prophetic um, words. And finally, and this is the stumbling block for a lot of people, his resurrection. And so what about the resurrection? How can I be sure it actually happened? I know the resurrection is a big hang-up for many. I really do. I, I worked with a guy for 25 years who was an atheist. Um, my best friend, one of the most generous, cool guys I know. Talked to him today, as a matter of fact. And he, he just cannot get over the hurdle of the resurrection. He just cannot buy it. And um, we're, we're still great friends. We, uh, we're still in relationship. And I've told him this many times because I've been in Alpha. What's the evidence, you know? I'll talk to Doug. What's the evidence? Well, there, there is some evidence about the resurrection that I can point to. One is that Jesus was clearly absent from the tomb. Now, some people might counter that and say, well, maybe his body was taken. Well, there's some talk in 
the New Testament that the guards, they actually put extra guards there to make sure that that wouldn't happen. So there is some, there, you could look at it either way, either he resurrected or his body was taken, or there is the third thought that maybe he wasn't completely dead. And I'm going to talk about that in a second when I get to the, the last part of this talk. Um, there's the recorded presence of Jesus after his death with his disciples. His disciples saw him, they talked to him, and they even ate with him. So some supernatural being claiming to be Jesus, who looked like Jesus, sat and talked to these people after his resurrection. Um, also, you could point to the effect on the early church. There, there's something un- amazing about the Christian faith that's unlike other faiths, where from this small town in Jerusalem, this faith is spread out and is completely global. And there are lots of faiths, but they don't have the global reach that Christianity does. So there's something, I believe, that points to the truth about Jesus and just the way the church has grown. And I would say, finally, the, the disciples themselves. I'm a flesh and blood guy. And I'm, I can't believe that those 11 men would have gone and died for something they didn't believe in. One of them would have recanted. One of them would have said, this isn't true. There's no way you can convince me that 11 men in their right mind, and they seem to have been, would have gone and died horrible martyrs' deaths. One of them was skinned alive. One of them was slowly beheaded. I mean, these guys, and they did not recant. They did not say, we, we're telling a lie. No, they put their faith in who this person was and who he said he was after his resurrection. So those are things I would point to and say, that's, that's proof for me that the resurrection occurred. Well, if this is true, if you're, if you're riding along with me like, okay, Gary, you fed me, you told me a really hilarious joke, I'll keep going. Anyway, if this is true, um, then why did he have to die? I mean, if he was such a great guy, why didn't he just stick around? Maybe he would have had an even bigger impact. Maybe the whole world would be full of Christian people now, some might say. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, that's part three of this talk. Um, for a lot of us, we have ornamentation that we keep around our necks or in our houses. Um, they're crosses. I've got this one my mother wore it for years, and when she passed, my brother said, what are we going to do with it? And I said, I tell you what I'm going to do with it. I'm going to put it around my neck, and I'm going to wear it now. Anyway, crosses. People wear them on earrings. People have them on walls. I think I have ten in my office at home, crosses. And I don't know if we've ever really thought about the cross. Um, the cross was not a way uh, to murder people. It was not the electric chair. It, it did do that, but the cross was there to torture people to death. It was a slow, slow, painful death. And what the, Roman, what the Romans had figured out was it was a great deterrent, and they saved it just for one class of people. It was for traitors. It was for people who, had, who would not pledge allegiance to the Roman state. And so they would take these people, and they would hang them on these crosses, and they would suffocate under the weight of their body. And they would put a little, it was interesting, they put a little thing for their feet so they could lift themselves up and catch their breath. And then they would lower themselves back down. And eventually the rib cage pulls up out of the abdomen. It's really a horrible thing. Now, for the people that didn't die by sundown, what the Roman soldiers would do to hurry the death, because they wanted to get on with their life, is they would take a large club, and they would break their femurs, biggest bone in your body, and that's where most of your blood is made in your body. So they would break their femurs, and as soon as their femurs broke, loss of blood, loss of blood pressure, someone died. But you would generally hang on that cross for quite a while, and in some places where they would raid towns, they'd just leave them up there and let the animals have at them. So the cross was a, a form of torture that eventually led to death. Um, it was the Roman, it was the Roman uh, government's way of ruling with an iron fist. So why did Jesus die on a cross? I mean, why would, he, why would he allow that to happen? Because that's what it says. Well, this is where the story gets interesting. The Bible says that there's a problem, that there is this problem in the world. 
And I really believe it now like I never have before. I, my wife's probably getting tired of me saying it. But there's this problem in the world. Something's not quite right, the Bible says. And the Bible's word for that is sin. And they, the Bible's claim is that sin came to the earth through man's disobedience. And it has four catastrophic um, results. The first is that there's this pollution of sin in our lives. That things that are put in front of us as being meaningful and purposeful, like I talked about earlier, are not really the thing that has the most meaning or purpose. Um, secondly, that sin has a power. That sin actually can move us and get us to do things that we weren't intended to do or weren't created to do. Um, sin comes at a cost. That, that there's a cost to this sin that's in our, in our lives. And worst of all, and the solution, is that sin has divided us from a perfectly holy God. That's what the Bible says. So, if that's true, and there was and is this problem sin, then quite quickly, Jesus died to pay the penalty for sin. But it, it's, it's more than that. It's more than that. He didn't just die. He allowed himself to be killed. Look at um, 1 Peter 2.24 on page, let's see, 901 of your Bible. So go to page 901. And we're looking at chapter 2, which actually starts on page 900. But the end of the chapter, the last two verses are on page 901. And this is what Scripture says the solution to the problem is. This problem sin that has four results. Pollution, power in our lives, and Worst of all, separation from our Creator. So there we are, 901, uh, 224, and it says, He, Jesus, Himself, bore our sins in His body and on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. So that third point about a cost for sin, that cost is death. Jesus bears, the Bible says, Jesus bears that cost. He took our penalty on himself, chose to climb up on the tree, the Bible says, and died in substitution for us. Died in substitution for us. So that has an effect, the Bible says, Jesus' giving of his life. It frees us, the Bible says, from the stain or pollution that's on us. His blood washes us and covers us. There's the analogy of the courtroom where the judge is standing, uh, sitting at his bench and I'm seated in the courtroom, and I'm, I'm guilty of this charge. And Jesus is my lawyer, thank goodness. And I'll just say it. I believe in kind of a healthy, big guy Jesus. I'm a big guy, so I'm a little bigger. He's six foot four. He's got a great tan, hair. And my lawyer, Jesus, comes in. And just about the time the judge, the judge is going to... Just about the time the judge is going to declare me guilty, I'll keep my hands up. Uh, my lawyer Jesus steps in front of me. And the judge can no longer see Gary crying and shrinking at his desk. He only sees Jesus. Jesus is standing between me and the one who is able to judge. And, and Jesus says, no, 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 Gary's mine. And so I'm declared innocent. By nothing I've done, by just simply who Jesus is. It frees us from the power of sin. It does not make us sinless creatures. Uh, Luther said, we're simultaneously saints and sinners. We aren't just instantly, oh, okay, I'll follow Jesus, poof, you're fine, and then, boom, you go to heaven. 
Well, I mean, that doesn't happen. I mean, he leaves us here for a reason, and we struggle the whole time we're here with this sinful life that we are constantly trying to turn over. And finally, and most importantly at all, the partition that separated us from our loving creator is gone. Jesus has opened up access to the Father, the one who created us. He gives us permission to actually call him Daddy in Jewish terms. We can call him Abba. Kind of makes me uncomfortable. Um, but it's the truth. So, um, to conclude, I want to tell you one quick story about how I know I'm a Christian. Because if my friend Doug was sitting here, he'd say, Gary, you're, you know, you, you sound a little different. You look a little different. I mean, prove it. I mean, how can you prove that you're a Christian? And I said, well, Doug, I, I can give you this as proof for, for me. And it, it's, it's this story that in 1990s, there was a Super Bowl where a Somerville, local Somerville football hero who had gone to play at Clemson, I think, was on the Cincinnati Bengals football team, and his name was Stanford Jennings, and he ran a touchdown back in the second half. And the whole town of Somerville, I mean, you could have heard the whole town. If you'd opened your doors and windows, everybody was cheering for this local boy made good on national TV running a touchdown back in the Super Bowl. Well, that wasn't necessarily the best part of the game because if you had purchased Doritos products, any kind of Doritos, on the backs of those Doritos, and this was in the 90s, were those cardboard 3D glasses. You know, now we have 3D television. You can buy 3D TV. You don't have to wear the goofy glasses anymore. But back then, if you wanted to see 3D, you know what I'm talking about, the paper glasses with the red lens and the green lens. Everybody with me? Okay, so you put these glasses on during halftime of this particular Super Bowl, and you could see the halftime show differently. And I called BS on that. I was like, no way. So everybody's watching the game. People are having beers, and I'm thinking to myself, as the halftime show comes on, I start to notice the people in the room are moving their heads. The, the cheerleaders, the jets that fly over, you know, the, the whatever band that was on. I mean, there was something different happening to those people with those silly cardboard glasses on. So finally, I couldn't take it. I looked at my brother. I said, give me those glasses. This can't be true. You know, I grabbed them. I stuck them on, and I stared at their, you know, color television set. And I'm, it was totally different. That beautiful, fun, colorful halftime show looked completely different with these 3D glasses on. It was silly, too, because now I was kind of engaging myself. I was moving a little bit. I was worried that, you know, when somebody kicked, I was going to get kicked, and it was amazing. That's how I can explain what um, it means to tell my friend Doug that I'm a Christian. Uh, it's nothing on the outside. I'm still a little overweight and six foot six, but the world looks different. Um, you can see the Grand Canyon and go, oh, that's beautiful, and you can watch stars and hear gorgeous music, but there's something different about putting on the Jesus glasses, if you will, that makes life richer, fuller. It has a little bit of, it's the good news and bad news. It makes the good things good and the bad things a little more intense. Um, it's not like a get-out-of-jail-free card where everything's rosy and everything's fine. Um, you, you tend to get more quickly engaged with people that you love. You tend to sacrifice a little more than you normally would. But it is I am definitely a different person. Today. I, have each, I wish I had the glasses. I should probably remember to put those on. So you've got... Um, You've got a little over 30 minutes to go to your small group. You're going to group. Watch. This is where I begin to really goof up. Group one, go over there to that corner, please. Group two here. Group three there. Group four here. And group five in where we had dinner. If you don't have enough chairs, feel free to grab some. I know we've made the groups a little bigger. And pull them in. And you're going to just do two things in group tonight. You're going to introduce yourselves and uh, tell us who pushed you into the pool. And then you're going to uh, discuss for a bit. Uh, these, these first couple talks, who was Jesus and uh, why did he die? And thanks again for coming. I'll see you next week.